Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And the first thing I want to do before I dig into any content, any interviews, is to send a huge happy birthday shout out to my wife. The day that this episode is being released, October 6th, is her birthday. If you know anything about Equity Matters Podcast, you know it, it does not thrive without the support of its fans, but it also would not continue to sustain without the support of my wife. So definitely want to send her lovely birthday wishes on today, and I hope that she has an opportunity to rest to celebrate herself for being present another year, and we will surely be doing the same at home. So today's episode, we are bridging conversations a bit. So last month, we spent quite a bit of time talking about community engagement, and then we segued into cultural responsive evaluation. And when you start thinking about the components that make these things up, you need to have a few elements, and, and the first being a community, and the other piece being data. And when you start to pull data from the community, there are certain principles or values that you should have as an evaluator or as a practitioner when you're actually approaching community. And I think uh, Dr. Cunningham and Dr. Johnson did a great job of explaining just the different ways that you can engage community as part of your process. Now, on today's episode, we're digging a little bit deeper and we're really focused on indigenous population and we're focusing on the ways that data has been colonized. And so we're gonna hear from the very soon to be, I'm putting no pressure on you at all, Dr. Autumn Asher Black Deer, MSW, um, who is gonna really unpack the ways that data has been used to oppress and to further marginalize, because you would think because we have data, we're able to make a better case for whatever interventions may be, whatever practices or policy decisions need to take place. But often we find that data can be easily manipulated. That's one of the things they tell you early on in grad school. When you're collecting data, be leery of shifting the data or the narrative supporting the data in order to reinforce um, whatever it is that you may want to see. So when you start thinking about the bias that may exist in your data, think about the questions that you've asked or the way that you collected the data, like all of those things matter. And so Autumn is going to share with us the ways that we go about decolonizing data and ensuring that as decisions are being made specifically for American Indian or Alaskan Native or other indigenous folks, they're made with the people in mind and the people included in the conversation. And so we talk about indigenous data sovereignty. It is the ownership of one's data and the ownership of what to do with that data. And so I'm really excited because Autumn, um, if we you know us via Twitter, is my horror homie. Uh, I recently deemed her this name, uh, but just the fact that it's October, we we share this this fondness for horror films being able to elevate the work that she's doing is really exciting. And so without further ado, I really want to introduce you all to Autumn Asher Black Deer. Autumn. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. So I'm Autumn Asher Black Deer. I'm a PhD candidate here at Washington University in St. Louis in the School of Social Work. So I'm originally from Greenwood, Arkansas, small town, and I'm currently here in St. Louis, Missouri, focusing on um, the intersections of behavioral health and sexual violence, particularly among American Indian women. And throughout my doctoral journey, I have just become this data head. I don't know when it happened. Like 
if you would have told me coming in, coming from my master's in social work program to the PhD, that I would become this huge data nerd, I would not have believed it. I hated math, right? Like, isn't that like a tenet of social work is that we're supposed to be like averse to math and all things numbers. And I took the foundations of data analysis my first semester and kind of just absorbed all of that information. And then I TA'd the class the following year. And then really from there, I just started teaching biostatistics and all sorts of things data and got really into native data and how we can decolonize data. And now I feel like that's part of my brand these days, honestly, it's just how do we look at data and how can we tell stories better? So I'm about to go full nerd on you. Qualitative or quantitative? And why? Quantitative. Quantitative. Ooh, ooh, tell us why. All numbers. I don't know anything. I mean, I, did, I took one qualitative class, but quantitative is my jam. It's been a long time since I've played around with in vivo, but all my, all my peeps are qualitative, but I'm glad to have you yeah. here. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> so yeah, we're few and far between. <laughs> you are actually it's, it's almost like a dying breed and also it's a, it's a fallacy right that social workers aren't good with math I mean we have to be right. we're, we're making like critical decisions typically on under-resourced budgets which means we have to be Absolutely. really good on that <clears throat> so you've brought it up um decolonization and I think that's going to be really how we center today's episode but could you define decolonization for people who are not familiar absolutely so for me, decolonization is the undoing of colonialism. And so that's typically seen in reference to indigenous or American Indian communities, because it's the way that nations reestablish themselves. So it's the returning to traditional ways of being, these traditional practices and languages. And it's also addressing your own internalized oppression and colonization. And decolonization gets used as a buzzword a lot or a metaphor. And there's literally an entire article called decolonization is not a metaphor. <laughs> Um, and saying these like hashtag decolonization is like really a disservice to the truly like incredible indigenous scholarship out there and what activists have been doing for a long time to really target these power structures and reshape them to accommodate indigeneity. Could you tell us how we see this in academia specifically or in research? Absolutely. So I think the main ways that we see decolonization throughout academia is kind of a little superficial and that's not, it's not a bad thing. I think that's a great place to start. So Dr. DeAndre Smiles, he's an indigenous um, researcher. He talks about how we can have both short and long-term decolonization goals. So I think right now we're in the short-term and we see a lot of things like people diversifying their syllabi or curriculum. Um, they're trying to decenter certain knowledge production manners or devaluing hierarchies. And while all of those are like great starting points and they're helpful, we really still need to focus on like the long-term of like truly dismantling these structures, right? Decolonization is more like meant to be like deeply transformative, right? Like of a truly long-term engagement rather than just, you know, boxes that I'm checking for a syllabus or saying like, oh, I'm decolonizing by doing X, Y, and Z. Um, so true decolonization in academia is really recognizing indigenous ways of knowing. So for example, the APA um, released the newest version of like the formatting guide and they included an entire section on how to cite traditional indigenous knowledge. And that's huge for decoloniz like decolonization because like our scientific knowledge, 
like our traditional indigenous knowledge is science, right? Even though it's not in a peer reviewed publication, like our ancestors were scientists, you know? And then other examples that we can see of decolonization in the classroom can look like, you know, relational practices, you know, talking circles, relational ways of interaction. So breaking down that hierarchy of the teacher teaching to students, like, but more embracing a learning community, seeing leaders in every chair. And now we can learn reciprocally from and by and with each other rather than just throwing knowledge at folks. You know, it's really interesting when I think about how many times we've been told the way that we do things are maybe wrong, right? Or it's, it's just not the right way. And then the more we start to unpack the layers of that, we realize that it just happens to be not centered in whiteness or it, it's not mm -hmm. a reflection of white supremacy. And then we start to see like, no, what we've been doing is actually in line with whatever our culture may be or whatever our community context may be. But for some reason, it's just been put off as, you know, not right or inaccurate or what I was able to glean from our um, evidence based practice episode is there's these ton of interventions that exist that for whatever reason, they don't meet the science, therefore they, they can't be established. And it's just unfortunate that we lose so much of our, I don't know, I'm also gonna say culture and history because of colonization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a big way that decolonization can kind of help research rethink about these things. Cause you know, research reflects the institutional ideals, right? So like the social political ideologies and things that are participating in and ultimately like who publishes the research. So the research is like an active space. And a lot of times I think we just treat it like, oh, this is just something that we do. And this is, you know, in like a nonchalant way of centering whiteness. But if we really like took intentional steps to decolonize research, some things that like to get back to your evidence-based practices would be like the co-construction of methodology or like rejecting this like gold standard of RCTs, right? Because this like the way that we evaluate what counts as knowledge and science definitely shapes how we get to the standards of what evidence-based practices are. And so, you know, a lot of RCTs are required or, you know, these high standards of knowledge to establish what counts as an evidence-based practice. Um, and we can't strip away context and culture for that. Like that's literally context is what matters. That's where the culture is. That's where the community is. And I feel like a lot of times research tries to be so sterile and like just, just sterile really. And so I think, you know, if we really took a look at decolonizing research, we would do things that were actually truly community driven. You know, sometimes the answer isn't research at all or a different approach. Um, and, you know, even in native communities, some evidence-based practices are kind of like interpreted or perceived as like clinical colonization, right? Like how are we gonna take a best practice that's only been, you know, shown effective with white communities and then just force that upon a native community, right? And think that like, they don't know what's best for them. Like that definitely sounds a lot like colonization to me. So, so yeah. No, I totally agree. And you, you hit a point earlier that I, I was gonna ignore, but I wanna bring it back. We can't treat these social justice activities as checkboxes, right? Like it, it's just mm -hmm. a disservice to all of us involved. If we're just doing it for the sake of, we have to do it. Like there's some intentionality that has to be present. 
Right. I I think too, especially with check boxes, folks love check boxes because it feels like it's a way to show that they're like doing the work, right? You know, like I can count how many black and brown authors I'm citing on my syllabus, or I can check that I met with the community one time before I like gave them this giant survey to fill out, you know? So these like check boxes are <laughs> actually kind of like ways out or like, you know, really visible ways for folks to pretend that they're doing the work or to feel better about it. And that kind of like helps folks from engaging in true like decolonial work. So I, I realized that I've taken this all off the outline. I'll bring this back. <laughs> so no problem. So what's the relationship between colonialism and data, right? Yes, this is, it's everywhere. So there's actually um, articles out there. Folks are actually calling this data colonialism um, because in our day and age, you know, technology is huge. I mean, we're living, we're living in virtual times and data is actually seen as like this new frontier. Like it's basically like the new version of the land grab, right? Like people are trying to just have access to, to both human data, like it's not just land and labor anymore. It's really access to human life. You know, everything that we do, all of our things are being tracked. And so we can see this throughout the process of research. Um, so if we think about it, um, even in collection, like a lot of people don't even try to collect data on American Indians. Like they just say it's too hard that we're either all on the reservation or we're all spread out across the United States. So there's no point in doing it. It would take too much time. Or even if they do collect our data, they often like put us in the other category, right? Like with, with everybody else that they said that they didn't get a big enough sample size for. And so all of this like contributes to this like false narrative of invisibility, right? If they're not even trying to collect our data and if they do collect our data, but never present it properly, it looks like we're not here, right? Like it just looks like, oh, where's all the native folks at? So I think, people use data to reinforce these like false colonial narratives, right? So we can see that if people use, it's like how the like historic horrible crimes that we've heard about early researchers, like um, like with the Havasupai tribe or like Tuskegee, right? Like just these horrific things that happen and folks are like, oh, we would never do something like that huge and horrific again. But it's like, I think smaller versions of those, you know, historic injustices are still happening today. Folks are either leaving out like marginalized communities from data overall, or they're misrepresenting marginalized communities to say certain narratives um, that are not true. So I think, I think we're entering into the next question. And could you describe some examples of ways data collection practices have omitted or misclassified populations? Absolutely. So a lot of times there's actually the National Congress on American Indians released an entire report called the Asterisk Nation. So, you know, a lot of times whenever we're like reading those APA style papers and you see that little asterisk and it's like you see in like the small little margins like, oh, sample size wasn't big enough or whatever. So they didn't present it at all. And a lot of times that's like where most of the American Indian Alaska Native data goes because I say, you know, something like sample size wasn't big enough or whatever. Um, the biggest, I think, offender in this category is like the other category, right? Where they have like, if we're thinking of like racial classifications and they will 
present, you know, like white, Asian, black, other. And it's like, who's other? And it's like everybody else. And whenever you like find significant results and you're like, oh, well, individuals in the other race were more likely to experience depression. It's like, who is that? Who's in the other category? Like, what do we actually know about them? So it kind of like stifles the data before we can even, you know, understand it. And I get that one's actually not the worst one. The absolute worst one, in my opinion, is when folks just do white versus non-white for racial categories. Like, it's just horrific. Like, I don't know how we are still doing that in 2021, but like what other way to center whiteness than dichotomizing your study into white versus non-white for racial classifications? Like, so it's just horrific. You know, whenever I see those two asterisks and they say population too small, I have to ask myself why, right? Like I'm, I'm yeah. arguing with the researcher in my notes, like, mm-hmm. why did you publish this? Why didn't you try to get more information? Why didn't you even drill down further? Like, I don't care about your T-test, give me the numbers. And it's unfortunate that we, we do that, right? And it goes through an entire process where we have institutionalized the acceptance of this other category or a population that's too small to quantify. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to the, the original relationship between colonialism and data is that folks are really not incentivized to actually, you know, try to get representative numbers. And so they just like, you know, have a sample of like 10,000 white people, maybe 5,000 black people. And then it's just, okay, well, that's all we could get, you know? It's like, no, that's actually like you, you didn't very, you didn't try very hard. Right, right. So thinking about folks like me who are policy driven, could you describe some of the consequences tied to colonialism and data the way data could be collected that will omit populations. What do we see um, upstream from this? Absolutely. Well, I think the biggest part of, you know, have like really poor data practices is that it slows the science. We're supposed to be building on a collective research. Like that's, that's literally our job. That's why we do lit reviews. That's why we build upon previous science. We have to know what other folks have done. And if there's no data or there's no work on certain communities that we want to work with, then we'll always stay in the same place of saying, wow, this is a problem, right? If the only data we ever have is just disparity focused or only, you know, that deficit base, we'll just keep staying in the same place of, wow, this is a problem, instead of moving on to saying like, yeah, this is a problem. These are some interventions that people have tried, or this is some prevention that we could work on. But if we never have data to keep building out those stories, we'll always just stay in the same place of this is a problem, right? <laughs> like, um, and that ultimately just leaves, leads us to incomplete narratives of what the community really looks like. So like a lot of early research with Native communities only focus on alcohol. And so all of the data was saying Natives have such a huge problem with alcoholism. And that just reinforced the stereotypes of like the drunken Indians and like you know, natives can't handle their liquor. And it's like, why aren't y'all collecting data on like our mental health, you know, or like how we're impacted by colonialism in present day society. And so, you know, that selective and like selective collection and presentation of data really shapes narratives of the community. And so I think that's why, that's why we have to decolonize data and reclaim our stories for ourselves because folks have been 
telling their own version of things for way too long and it's, it's not accurate. So all of that, I think both of those points kind of lead to the bigger point of like, if we don't handle data properly and let folks tell their stories, that's, we're ultimately just reinforcing white supremacy in research, right? Letting white folks tell us information about our communities that's false or just misrepresentative at best. And it, it does another, I want to add to, to what you're mentioning. It, it does something else as far as narrative, right? It, it completely omits the root causes. And mm-hmm. what, I'm, what I'm gathering is, you know, when you talk about alcoholism or any substance for, for that matter in a particular community and not ask about the mental health and then not ask about the social determinants, what's available to folks, you know, do they have appropriate social supports? And then you start looking at some of the policies and laws that have been enacted in those areas, you start to find and unravel, there's probably some institutional racism in there. There's probably some classism mm-hmm. in there. There's probably some gender discrimination in there. And when we limit ourselves to just alcoholics, like we're, we're not telling the complete truth as to why this problem exists. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk solutions, right? How do we go about advancing equity in research through decolonizing data? I think part of it you've mentioned is really shifting the discourse and the narrative, but what else do we do? Yeah, I mean, my ultimate recommendation is always to let folks tell their own stories through data. So I think that can be achieved in a lot of different ways, but mainly kind of what we talked about um, with how we like like privilege certain forms of knowledge with evidence-based practice. I think we have to stop prioritizing certain forms of knowledge over others. So, you know, data and the power dynamics that are associated with like how data is used and how it's interpreted, like that leads to, you know, these damaging narratives that we've been talking about. And so it's really, it's not just to let folks tell their stories, but to also have them own their data not just like have other folks collect it and interpret it, right? You know, cause even in like community-based models, there's just like, you know, again, that checkbox of like, oh, did you take your, you know, findings back to the community? And it's like, they should be involved throughout the entire process of saying like, even from the beginning of how, what research questions are they interested in? How, like, what, what are they interested in finding out about their community? What information do they want to be shared? How do they want that to be shared? Um, yeah, like, so we have to empower people to tell their own stories through data and not just rely on these archaic, you know, goals of having unbiased and just really sterile forms of research. Um, Cause that's not, that's not our present situation. And like, you really cannot, especially for native communities, you cannot remove native communities from the community and like recreate that anywhere else. You know, like the community happens in the context, right? In the culture, you can't, you know, control for that. We spoke heavily on the researcher side of things and things that they could do. How about practitioners, people who are out in the field, implementing services, evaluating services? What what could they do for advancing equity, especially when it comes to decolonized data? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to shift from strength from deficit orientations to strength-based approaches. So 
I know that should be inherent in social work, right? Like that's one of our goals is strengths-based, but we're actually kind of like taught the opposite. They give us a lot of like standardized measures that are like counting symptoms or, you know, counting the numbers of problems and things that we have. And, you know, especially with native communities, that doesn't really work with us. Like a lot of native communities don't have, you know, we don't define ourselves according to what's wrong. We focus on well-being or holistic versions of wellness. And so I think practitioners could really, you know, take a step back and see how, like what data they're collecting on overall, like well-being or, um, or how well things are going instead of focusing on what's going wrong. Um, I think it's a big way to do that. It's just empowering the folks in the community. Again, probing on this notion of narrative, how should we start talking about this and adding to the discourse? I know part of it is taking that asset frame, talking about strengths and what's working well. Is there more that we could be adding to our culture when it comes to decolonizing data and also not doing it for the purpose of checking the box? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think we can stop contributing to the buzzwordification of decolonization. Um, so really looking at what does it mean to truly decolonize? Like if we took a step back, like how are we like how are we pushing equity forward through our practices? So even if it's like mandating collection of race and ethnicity in health data or you know collecting tribal affiliation, um, specific to native populations, or even like oversampling overlooked populations, right? To get those sample size numbers up. But I think there's even better conceptions of how we can talk about this, like data governance or data sovereignty is looking at how, um, how we can really build those like strong communities or reinforce the strength that we're seeing in our communities through data, not just, you know, so instead of moving away from like reclaiming data, but to how we can use data to empower our communities and tell those impactful stories. And so I think the biggest thing is to reframe from you know, data and research to like an indigenous concept such as storytelling. So Abigail Echohawk is from the Urban Indian Health Institute in Seattle. And she says like, I always think about the data as like a story and each person who contributed to the data are storytellers. And so if you think about it like that, you know, we have a responsibility of telling people stories. And if that doesn't like give you an immense responsibility and like drives you towards equity, I really don't know what will, right? Because um, we have to care for our storytellers and we always have a responsibility to, to tell those stories respectfully, humbly, and in an appropriate manner, right? That empowers the folks that we're sharing about. Totally agree. Totally agree. And it's funny how often you mention storytelling, yet you're a quant. That's, that's fine. We can tell, we can tell <laughs> numbers. Yes, we can. So Autumn, I noticed on Twitter that you are doing a lot right now. You know, a lot of speaking <laughs> engagements, a lot of um, upcoming presentations. How can people keep up with you, add your events to their calendar, your work as you're getting ready for wrapping up your PhD program. How can people follow you? Well, you can always follow me on Twitter. That's a great place to start. So I am at Asher Blackdeer. I have a website, autumnasherblackdeer.com. And if you really, you know, need some help with your data, if you have some or need some help getting some, I also do some consultant work on the side with research and data. 
Um, we actually have our own hashtag. <laughs> so I'm a quantitative native. <laughs> Love it. So there's because most of us do qualitative, so it's it's pretty rare to find to find quantitative folks such as myself. So you can always send me an email, and that's up on my website as well. And I'll definitely make sure all of those links are when are included in the episode notes when this episode comes out. Yay! Thank you so much. And shout out to the consulting world. It is new space for me. <laughs> yes, I know. Me too. I'm kind of into it though. I don't feel as uh, bogged down as I do with my nine to five. Right. Yeah. It's like that, like power to select what, what you want to spend your time on. The ability to say no, right? Like, Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but I don't definitely know that you have a fan over here. Um, one, just want to say thank you for joining me on the podcast and also two for the work that you're doing, because when we start talking about data and i always take like that macro perspective data is going to make drive so many decisions and Mm -hmm. going all the way to the nitty-gritty detail of how it was collected how it was interpreted all of that follows up into policy making and so being able to strip away a lot of the whiteness and the white centeredness of data is going to have huge ramifications so thank you for the work that you're doing I hope that others continue to join the movement and also stop doing things to check a box. Yes, thank you so much. This was so fun. Oh my gosh, thank you. Of course, just want to say thank you to Autumn for hopping on the podcast. You know, there as I'm starting to go through the vault of recordings, I'm realizing like how excited I've always been for the guests that I have on the show. Because, you know, I I create like a a targeted list of folks that I want to connect with and being able to say, hey, I I talked to this person and they were phenomenal, no less. And just the things that they raise as speakers, as researchers, as decision makers, like I'm always excited and I'm just grateful to be in fellowship with with so many brilliant people. I want to make a few quick announcements before we wrap up for today. We are anticipating module two of the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy. That's gonna take place on November 16th at 7.30 p.m. A few lessons learned from the first go round. First of all, an hour is just not enough time. I had way too much content, but it was still a really great conversation. So we're gonna stretch this one out to an hour and a half and not gonna change the price. We'll still keep it at $100. The topic this go round is going to be white ain't right, the consequences of white supremacy culture. I think that we're going to put something together very nice um, as we talk about the ways that we dismantle and abolish white supremacy in the workplace and academia and cramming all of that into an hour and a half is going to be a a feat in itself. But I think we're going to have a really great conversation. I will definitely let you all know when the link is available to register. Excited to kick that off. Next, you'll be hearing from us again soon. Um, I was able to join the Everybody Relax podcast. Not quite sure when when that's going to drop, but being able to talk about being more than my credentials. Always grateful to be in fellowship with the Gary Trey Taylor. Um, Great things popping over there. If you haven't heard the more than my credentials series, I would highly recommend. I think it's it's important that, you know, beyond 
the the alphabet soup that comes behind our names that we continue to just be individuals who can show up um, that you are more than the things that you do from nine to five. I mean, having a hobby, having something that you're passionate about aside from what you do for work is, is, is key, especially as you're finding yourself. I know many of our listeners are uh, graduate students. And so thinking about, you know, am I showing up for just this nine to five or am I showing up for myself for everything else? What else is going on this month? So I, I put out there on Twitter that I wanted to do a a few things so the first was a free webinar around sitting in your discomfort and what does that mean i haven't figured out when i want to do it but it's going to happen this month because why not i mean it's something that i've been thinking about more frequently as i I struggle with some of my own discomfort and being able to place how i'm feeling why i'm feeling and where i'm feeling it at and so i wanted to do something where i could dissect that experience a bit so stay tuned for that. I will definitely include that on the listserv. So please sign up for our listserv. The link is in our bio. Also this month, I am joining the Network for Social Work Management. I'll be doing a session on community engagement entitled Community Engagement, Are You In or Out? That's going to take place on Wednesday, October 13th, 1 to 2 o'clock. That's Eastern Standard Time. Cost is $25. Link is in the bio to register. Really grateful for the opportunity to to share my own experience and expertise from time to time i think as you've heard probably in most episodes community is very important to me it's it's part of the reason why i do what i do how i do it and being able to give back in that way i'm I'm always grateful the other thing I, i shared at the beginning of the episode it's october which means it's horror movies all around for me If you've got recommendations, definitely pass them my way. I started Squid Game yesterday, and no one prepared me for just how trippy I was going to uh, feel. So let me finish that. I've got Midnight Mass lined up, but if you've got other classics that you would recommend, please send them my way. In the same spirit of horror movies and blending with things that, that are exciting to me, I am putting together a short series around horror films and social justice. I put something out there on Twitter and I got some feedback saying, hey, let's do it. And so hopefully by the end of this month, you'll get maybe two or three episodes that really dissect why horror movies are perfect for social commentary and some of the things that we could take away from those experiences. I know a lot of folks don't like horror movies for that reason, but hey, I want to show up all of me as well. Follow us on social media. That's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram. That is at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. And you can find us and like us on Facebook, Equity Matters Podcast. I think that covers everything this go round. Until we talk in two weeks, folks, please take care of yourselves. Um, if that means take a little bit of self-care time, a little mental health break, please do so. If that means shutting off the computer, please walk away from that. And please stay safe. Just there are this virus is not over. This pandemic is not over. We have vaccines. Yes. But if you look at the numbers, you can tell that there's still so much more work to be done. And in the meantime, if you need episodes to listen to, you know where to find us. Take care of yourselves. And in case you forgot, equity matters.